0: Well, today I am joined by Winkfield Twyman Jr. And Wink, you are a former law professor and author, co-author of a new book, Letters in Black and White, A New Correspondence on Race in America, which you authored with Jennifer Richmond of ILV. And I've spoken with Jennifer, and um, this is my first time getting to speak with you in person, but I'm so pleased to have the opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks for
1: joining me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it
0: yeah so you have um you have a very uh great uh background I, the, the the your background in law is is really impressive and and you've come through your life in in the way that you have and and you've had this experience of watching us talk about race uh, I guess over the over the years probably somewhat differently an evolving conversation around race and and Probably you mentioned
1: 2 years 62 <laughs> years of
0: <little> <laughs> And you mentioned that you really have been enjoying writing on race recently. Yes. And so what what has been your um evolving understanding of of this concept in American life and and what are your thoughts and what brings you into this conversation
1: now at this time? Well, that's a great uh, question and thank you for asking it. Uh and thank you for having me as a guest. Um You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was born in Richmond, Virginia uh, in 1961 uh, in the capital of the Confederacy. And for the first eight years of my life, I lived in a a world that was all Black, and I had no sense of race. Race was not on my radar screen. Uh, All the people who were most important in my life, my parents, grandma, uncles, aunts, cousins, we talked about many things church, family, dreams, but never things that bore upon the topics we hear today in the public square, such as oppression, white privilege, mm. marginalization, et cetera. Those words were alien to me as I was growing up in my all-Black world. It was only when um, public schools desegregated in 1969, the fall, that I had a sense of race. Uh, I was the only black kid in my uh, formerly all white school. Uh, I think you may be able to relate to that. If I recall, Leslie, you may have been a minority uh, in your great school experience back in Texas. And so I remember this moment when race was first something I had to think about and address. Uh, my white classmates uh, who were probably coming from homes that were very bigoted and prejudiced in, in 1969 in Virginia, uh, with all kinds of slurs and names, and I, I, I didn't understand why, and it, it, it got to me. And so I remember one day, when I was eight years old. I just sat down at the playground and thought about it. Why are these people equating skin color with intelligence? I mean, the most important people in my life—mom, dad, grandma, Aunt Juanita, my various uncles, cousins. We were all black, all different shades of skin color, from dark to light. Intelligence and character had no bearing on skin color, and I knew that from my experience in an all-black world. So I reached an epiphany, in a sense, on the road to Damascus. But I reached a a sense that these people were dumb. They were just kind of stupid. They weren't very Mm -hmm. intelligent. Mm -hmm. And that realization of playground kind of fortified me for my grade school days ahead. Actually, into adult life, the idea that it's the person that counts, not the skin color, because that really has no direct correlation or causation to anything of note. So that's how I kind of viewed race throughout grade school, college, law school, adult life. And it worked for me. (laughs) I, I sometimes marvel at the things I see nowadays in the public square. Structures, systems, interlocking schemes of oppression. Hey, I missed that movie. (laughs) I can tell you that that was just not my experience. And I was someone who actually grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Um, But here's the thing. On April 21st, 2018, I was having a conversation with a family member. And this family member is very privileged. It's fair to say. Comes from very educated uh, parents, uh, educated grandparent, great-grandparents, accomplished ancestors dating back to 1790. So if anything, objectively, this person, it may be in the top 1% of people on the globe in terms of opportunities. But this person said to me in a conversation, blackness is oppression. Mm. Nothing else matters.
2: Mm.
1: And the disconnect between those words, that way of understanding the world, and what I knew from my personal life uh, struck a discord for me. It, it didn't make sense. And so that prompted me to dive more deeply into this idea of race as it was currently understood and to write about it and resulted ultimately in the uh, the book, Letters in Black and White, which you referenced earlier. So yeah, so I think it was the disconnect between what I knew mm-hmm. and what this close person said to me that prompted me to want to dig deeper into uh, what was going on. Mm. How's that for a story?
0: <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it is really interesting. I, I have, uh, you know, I, when I was in graduate school and we were being taught this, this way of looking at race that was different than I'd ever encountered previously, I actually, I brought out um, because you we we sort of had joked about doing a mock session, uh, <laughs> like the way that I was taught in my program. And so healed me, Leslie, healed me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and it's just so this patently a, it's so offensive. <laughs> I just I can't quite Eternal bring oppression
1: be gone.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's stuff like <laughs> I you know, and I pulled up an I, I pulled up my book. <laughs> right, right, this right. one on counseling uh, the culturally diverse, where we yeah we were taught how black identities develop and how white identities develop. And I, Mm -hmm. and the thing is, I think that some people see themselves represented in this. I genuinely do. Mm -hmm. And I, as I looked around the classroom at fellow graduate students who, you know, mostly white people, mostly women nodding along, and really talking about their privilege and feeling this feeling like this was representing them. I, first I wondered, are you know i you know am i am i going crazy cuz i this doesn't this seems really reductive and 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 simplistic and like you said kind of stupid but i realized that it to some extent it did represent some of their experiences as people who had grown up in the middle class in a mostly white area they really did feel like they were encountering their racial identity if you will in the way that the book was describing for me it was really different i didn't grow up like that and i i i don't hold my experience up as some kind of exceptionalism it's just that people have a variety of different experiences i didn't grow up in an only white area and i didn't i didn't have even the experience you describe of prior to 8 years old being surrounded by only people who were of the same racial background as yourself that wasn't my experience either when i was uh from birth till 3 i i lived in a a quadruplex and my parent the people across the hall were a black family with a kid my same age there's a bunch of pictures of us playing together I think his name was Johnny I don't remember him but there's you know clearly you can see my my, you know my experience didn't have this mono ethnic flavor that critical race theory tells us people grow up with
1: and what is mine nor, yeah, there <laughs> it is. Mine, no, it, so
0: and it seems so problematic to try to take aggregates of experience and then distill them down to something that represents the individual,
1: exactly. You know, if there are over 40 million black Americans, there are over 40 million stories, experiences, and perspectives. So, it is true, perhaps, that there are some experiences that can roughly, uh, crudely be collapsed into uh, an avatar Mm
2: -hmm. for
1: a race, but but one has to be mindful that ultimately people are humans before they are a race. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at people that way, you're tuned into what's their particular experience in life, right? So for example, when we began writing the book, Jennifer Richmond and I, one of the things that she said, and I recognized it from years of living and from media coverage, is she lamented how she felt she couldn't really understand uh, Black Americans because she had no overlap with the experience of Ta-Nehisi Coates, who wrote Between the World and Me. And as you might recall, he was a writer born in 1975 in Baltimore, Maryland, Mm -hmm. who uh, wrote a very dystopian view of the Black experience in America. And, And I said to Jennifer, it's the same goes for me, too. I grew up in a southern suburb, a small town. Uh, my grade school was 3.74% Black. My high school was 8%. I, I very much lived in middle America. But what's interesting is that, and Jennifer has a good heart and a good faith because of the way we so live in caricatures and view Black Americans through stereotypes, she was primed to believe well, Tawny Hoffman coach has given me the word, the gospel mm. on the black experience. I'm recognizing it's far smarter just to talk to Wink and see what Wink story is. You shouldn't read Wink through the filter between the world and me. Because if you do, that's like being a crazy fun house where the mirrors are all distorted and convoluted. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually don't like cities. I find cities a little bit, uh, uh, what's the word? I, I don't want to go too extreme here, but I will say, obviously, that I'm most comfortable in small towns. I'm mm-hmm. most comfortable in mountain places. Mm-hmm. Uh, cities for me are different. They're, they're not what I grew up knowing. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not true for all people, of course. My lovely wife, born and raised in Brooklyn. So, of course, I've had to adjust and accommodate myself to the urban experience. Same goes with my mother-in-law. But by and large, I mean, there are people for whom the small town, the suburb that's kind of their template for life. And so they appreciate that many Black Americans may live in the city, but we kind of look at it from a distance. Mm -hmm. It's not a lived experience we would internalize. And that's why I find that books like Between the World and Me, Ta-Nehisi Coates and many diversity trainers and many dogmatists, they just get it wrong Mm -hmm. because it's kind of intellectual laziness you know, all there are all of these millions of black people. I want to understand them. Give me something down, dirty, and cheap. Give me like an easy thing to grab onto. Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Off the shelf.
0: Yeah. And and I I had that thought as well when I was um when I was being encountering this material for the first time that there's this sense of almost a white hive mind that I'm supposed to be able to tap into somehow mm. there's this flattening of what it means to be, you yeah. know, to look like a certain kind of person. You, you must think like a certain kind of person if you look and I I find it so condescending and mm. the people that it's most condescending to are the people that it lifts up as marginalized because it's really infantilizing mm. in some ways. I, I, I get that there's a spirit behind it of recognition of difficulties that people have experienced or do experience. Right. And I think yeah. that that there, there are conversations to be had around that and sensitivities that could be instilled around that. And yet I think m- m- to my way of thinking, this is the wrong way to go about that.
1: Well, like for example, Leslie, for example, let's say uh, I was a, a client of yours uh, and you were a life coach. And I was having issues, non-racial issues, about, oh, let's say there's some family member from back home in Virginia who I just can't stand. And I think that family member would be a very poor influence in my household or that family member to come to San Diego. And it causes me to lose sleep at night. I toss and turn. I share my fears with my wife. She doesn't think it's a big deal. I come to you. Because I can't be at peace until I can address this issue. How would you approach me? How would you counsel me about this deep issue of not wanting to have a family member move across the country and live in my my home? Because I think it would be disruptive well, due to cultural differences.
0: Yeah, well, I think first we just start by exploring what's the what's the context, what what's going on currently with this? What's the need for this family member to do this? What 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 has led you to this decision? Where's the ambivalence well, around it?
1: Well, I don't know. I don't know, Leslie, uh, when she, she, she doesn't have a dad in the house. Um, her mom is not exactly uh, the best mom. Uh, and I don't know how long her mom will live. Her mom is in very grave, medical condition and the problem is l- logically ge- genealogically if the mom were to pass away tomorrow who is going to be there to bring in this person mm. logically family members would turn to me mm-hmm. but i can't tell my family members this this person is this the person from hell mm. this this person might disrupt the values and attitudes I've inculcated in my children over 15 and 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my wife and I have certain expectations in our home. We have no idea what um, the values and attitudes this person might bring into our house. So mm-hmm. so so how do I get over that, Leslie? How do I, how do I make a good decision here? Because mm-hmm. because the family member is kind of like hinting that they need to write a will. And they're kind of hinting that maybe I should be the the guardian, the
0: new guardian. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I guess this would take and... a lot of contextual exploration because we, you know, what what has brought that? Uh, you have to consider the dynamics of your own family and yes. the, the yes. pros and cons, and whether there's somebody else in the family that's more well suited to taking this person in. Mm-hmm. And is this a? It sounds like this is a minor child who still has some years to go before they're where they're going to need to be dependent let's say a teenager let's say a
1: teenager yeah let's say around 15 or 16 Mm -hmm.
0: and you have if you have children that are in a similar age range this is yeah something that one
1: kid older one kid the same age one kid younger
0: and this this family member may have may really need someone to go and live with and you may be one of the people who could do that but when you are also considering the needs of your own children they have to come first this is your your yes. primary family at home yes. and I so agree you. to in order to know where to go with that it would take a lot of exploration and then what is it that your concerns are and is there some way to mitigate those concerns sure. so that you can ease sure. the integration of this family member in It's is a very sure. complex it, it is. sounds like a very complex topic
1: to Two quick points, Leslie. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, uh, I feel this kind of uh, guilt because it's almost deja vu. My mom, whom I love so much, my mom was orphaned as a teenager at the age of 15. Mm. So now she was left all alone in the world. Mm -hmm. And luckily, her big brother took her in. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was secure. She was now, she now had a great foundation. He fit into a new neighborhood Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: uh, from there had a a beautiful life. Mm -hmm. Am I, in a sense, facing the same situation Mm -hmm. that my beloved mom did, Mm -hmm. but I'm acting totally unlike my uncle did.
2: Mm.
1: That causes me a little bit of ethical uh, quandary. Yeah. am i less of a moral person than my uncle
2: mm. who took in mm-hmm.
1: his little sister who's orphaned without a second thought
2: mm-hmm. and
1: here i am you know mr lawyer in san diego mm-hmm. obsessing about uh, this a comparable situation mm-hmm. so yeah and then the final point uh, uh the final point is i think part of it is leslie I, I, i'm an introvert <laughs> And my wife is the extrovert in the family, and I just don't know how I would handle having disharmony brought into my home as an introvert. Mm, So mm. let's stop. Let's freeze frame out (laughs) of that situation. What I love, Leslie, what I love is you did not bring grace into the conversation at the Mm get-go. You saw me as a person. You saw me as an individual. You didn't tell me. Well, now let's see whether or not you're actually internalizing some oppression here, Sonny Boy. Let's see how that experience growing up in a southern suburb warped your mind to, uh, to 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 view the life through the filter of the oppressor. So I like that, Leslie. I think you are what we need in this day and age of racial <laughs> dogma.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just I think it's uh it's it's beyond me how race would enter into that conversation.
1: But you know, people could do that, right?
0: Well, you know, and I think that it's, it's relevant to the degree that it's relevant to the context of the person's situation and for, for the, uh, professional, for the, the helping professional to just automatically assume that is to insert something that's not being brought out by the client. And I think that there's this whole concept of broaching race. This is a a big controversial topic in, in counseling and, and it's the way we're going with counseling training. I, there's there are times when it might make sense if you feel like it's been kind of brought up around the edges and something that's been you you have you should have the social intelligence to know that there's something right. that's awkward or uncomfortable and that maybe it needs right. to be brought to the surface and that could be race it could be anything it could be sure it could sure. be something to do with uh you know any number of factors that you're kind of right. hearing that the client is is having difficulty raising and you're mm-hmm. perceptive enough to know that maybe it's might maybe it's my job to broach this and bring it to the surface. Race is right. just one of those variables that it could be.
1: Yes, that is so right. And it's it's just one of many dimensions of a person. Mm-hmm. So the person that you're talking to, you're going to be able to read them. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to tell, is this a baby, Dr. Kendi I'm talking to? <laughs> <laughs> or, or, is this is just your middle class, middle American, 1970s generation, Black guy who... Uh, you know, loves Bruce Horst being the range, hates rap. He's just, you know, that kind of a guy. You'll be able to read him and you won't interject race. And I think he or she will appreciate that. That's what I want from a therapist. Mm-hmm. Someone who sees me doesn't just see the story of race.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I have to wonder if there's a whole new cohort of people who are, are so... Have been so indoctrinated into this way of mm. thinking that that won't be how younger people expect their interactions to go,
1: and that terrifies me, Leslie yeah. to be honest. that just makes a chill go over my spine. So for example, in our world of hypotheticals, like suppose you have a kid who really is mm. she or he has everything going for himself. let's make it make it up you know so this person. <clears throat> Who otherwise, you know, has gone to the best private schools, has the best educated parents, there's no strife in the home. But this person, their classes, they're always taught blacks are victims.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Blacks are downtrodden. Blacks were slaves. There's historical trauma. They're walking around in fear of the police officer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're afraid to enter the door. Here, read white fragility. Read Between the World and Me. Read Anti-Racism and you will be free, preppy black kid from the upper middle class home (laughs) in Malibu, let's say. And so what happens, I fear, Leslie is, this type of black kid is going to have mental issues artificially created due to what he's hearing in the classroom in high school. Mm -hmm. So by the time he gets into his Ivy League college, Let's say it's Harvard. Yeah. Let's say it's Harvard. He's gonna be going to the therapist's office as much as he can because he doesn't understand. I'm at Harvard, but I'm oppressed. I am victimized, but yet, you know, I have these wonderful opportunities to work at management consulting firms or Goldman Sachs or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think I think that the cohort you speak of in terms of indoctrination may have the knockoff consequences of creating more mental distress for non-conforming Black kids who don't fit
0: mm.
1: the caricature of what Black people bring to the table. Mm-hmm. That's mm. my thought. That's my thought.
0: Yeah, and it seems like a really unfair thing to put into someone's mind everybody hates you and they want to oppress you. Everybody's right, suspicious right. of you. Everybody's afraid of you. And, and all the, sure. the sort of sure. you know, stereotypes.
1: Now, now if you were a little me, in the year 1969, <laughs> outside of Richmond, Virginia. Okay, you got a point. I, I okay, but not, but not if you're living in Malibu in the mm-hmm. year 2023 mm-hmm. on a hill with you know no. That's one of the problems I see. Leslie is it's almost like we have uh, freeze framed black culture and consciousness, mm-hmm. so that when we think of black culture and consciousness it's like from the 1950s or it's like a 1960s movie reel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it never shows a sense of historical development over the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s, mm-hmm. the 2010s, the 2020s. I mean, we're all human. Mm-hmm. Imagine how much change has occurred in Black American families over those years. My father, my mm-hmm. father was born in 19... 19- 34. Mm-hmm. My daughter, born in 2002, imagine the 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 Grand Canyon of difference in their racial experience, mm-hmm. which I don't think your training materials would cover or address. So my dad could never call a white classmate a classmate because schools were segregated by race. My daughter has only known schools that are, let's say, 6% Black or less. Mm -hmm. So my dad has never flown an airplane, just hasn't, Mm -hmm. no reason to. My daughter is a world traveler, doesn't Mm -hmm. think twice about it, right? Um, My dad uh, lived in a world where he had great respect and esteem in the Black church as superintendent of the Sunday school. My daughter lives in a world where she gets great respect because she's a leader uh, in a fraternity at an Ivy League institution. Mm. Those are just such great differences of experience. And I think that um, people who train therapists do Black families a disservice when they don't recognize the nuanced complexity of generational ways of experience over time. So lastly, I'm almost a nomad between my dad and my my children, right? Mm -hmm. My dad never knew a desegregated school in his life. Mm -hmm. His son, well, I knew segregation first and second grade, Mm -hmm. but never a segregated time after second grade. My daughter never, ever, ever, never knew such Mm -hmm. a thing as segregation. So when we talk about race, I think it's really unfair for private school teachers Teach young black kids today stories that would have made sense in their grandparents' generation. Mm-hmm. Blackness is oppression. Nothing else matters. It doesn't really account for all the differences that have happened with the rise of affirmative action and mm-hmm. integration. Just my, my thought. Yeah.
0: So you really kind of see yourself as in a in a transitional generation between I two do.
1: worlds. I do. I think it's the greatest untold story in American literature and scholarship today. Mm. The greatest generation I suspect in terms of race was the generation of kids who began life in Southern schools in all Black settings, but would later herald in a better world of desegregation and integration by the time they reached high school, Mm. I think. Mm. And so we learn how to be comfortable in the outside world. You learn not to be so distrustful people because they are white. I mean, it amazes me that, that this... Dr. Kendi fella. Mm-hmm. I read his book, and I think at one point he said he thought white people were aliens from outer space because <laughs> they didn't really have... That, it, 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 for me, that shows a lack of intimate personal knowledge of other racial groups as a mm-hmm. youngster. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways we were really blessed in Southern suburbs in the 1970s as, as, a, as that transition generation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Leslie, to be fair, It created some generational gaps. Mm -hmm. We always hear about generational gaps, maybe in white American families, but not so much black American families. So my father was very, very opposed to me attending Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm. Why? Because in his experience, black lawyers attended Howard Law School. That's where Thurgood Marshall had gone, Charlie Houston, Spotswood Robinson, um, on and on. Uh, And so when I said to my father, well, dad, you know, Harvard Law School is the best, quote unquote, you know, most dads would really care about that. Mm -hmm. And he turned to my mom. My mom was always my biggest supporter. And he said and he said to my mom. "Uh, How did he put it? Um, You always supported him uh, in his efforts uh now he's just trying to be white he's trying to act white Mm -hmm. and that's just a that's just a a racial slur that's just a racial misconception of ambition but coming from your your dad it has a kind of a double punch Mm -hmm. and so i think our relationship never was the same after Mm -hmm. that because he was not on board with my ambitions Mm -hmm. could you argue for racial reasons perhaps because Mm -hmm. He he didn't understand how his son could be so happy and accomplished and successful in a mostly white school. Mm-hmm. Because remember, to him, that was very alien. That was very strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, during segregation, he would have to ride in a school bus past my high school, go you know, to the segregated all-Black school, George Washington Carver mm-hmm. High School. I mm-hmm. get his son, what, 20 years later, 25 years later, is the student body president. At mm. the very formerly all-white school, he couldn't attend. Mm. That kind of works a wow. number in your mind, and I don't think yeah. you really appreciate that so much in, in race literature or race scholarship. But the thing is, you don't hear my voices in the public square, and I, I think I know why, Leslie. I think it's because I don't really further the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, weeping uh, mm-hmm. in sorrow for my Negrohood, quote unquote. Yeah actually I'm pretty optimistic. I am a pretty, my genetic wiring, I have genes, but I think optimism. I tend to look at the best side of things, the sunny side of things. I'm a joyful person. And I think sometimes if you really buy into the dogma and the critical race theory, it breeds resentments, Mm -hmm. it creates crush holding, it gives people a reason to explain why life is treating them poorly. And so it's a very inward looking dogma, critical race theory, I think, I mean, think of the the very words, oppression, marginalization, intersectionality. I mean, all of these slogan words and others, they breed distance from the black person in the larger world. We need words that do the opposite, I think. We need words that build up the inner individual. So for example, let's talk more about words like self-reliance, self-ambition, Self dignity, self respect, mm. mm. humanity. I mean, I, I think those words are more empowering for the inner person. But you know, I'm a heretic. What, guys?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the the joyful optimism really comes through in in speaking with you, and also just in the messages that we've shared back and forth over you know scheduling and things. And as I was telling you before we hit record the the 2l dropout in me was kind of intimidated to speak to the law professor but oh, you've been oh, so playful
1: and oh fun God, to talk oh to <laughs> and, and, and i like i like worship you leslie oh I, gosh I, I told you i mean you had the courage you had the courage to, to 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 drop out and do something what gave you can I, if i could turn the tables uh, what gave you the courage to do that as to a, drop as out of law school all? oh my yes. gosh That's the great story. Uh, Listeners, this is the great story here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was, it was complicated when I was going, uh, when I was in undergrad, I was really torn between graduate study in psychology and going into law school. And I, I kind of, I, I had sort of started to think about counseling because I realized what I really wanted to do overall was to just work with, with people in individuals or, or small groups, families, to help solve problems in whatever way I could do that through law, or I could do that through, through counseling. The program that I was in my undergrad was really heavy, heavily focused on clinical psychology and they had a, mm-hmm. they had a, they looked down their nose at counseling psychology as uh-huh. it's it's just this soft thing you want to go clinical and I right, never right, really right. liked the clinical perspective I really liked the softer yes. more more, you know, human side of things and so I I, I went ahead and went towards law school because I didn't really see myself going into uh, academia. And then in my first year, I realized I'd made a mistake, but I stuck it out. And so in my second year, I decided to take a leave of absence. I also had some personal stuff going on with my family. Okay. So I took a leave of absence and gave it some thought and decided to uh, to go to graduate school instead. So that was that's very, the whole reason.
1: Yeah. Very mature move. I can say as a former law professor, very mature because you have the ability to go against conformity because I suspect there were tremendous peer pressures uh, or, or herd group think that, that, well, this is the path you're on. And if you drop out, you've wasted one year of your life. You've wasted one year. Of- yeah. I know all the arguments. I recognize them well. <laughs> so I just really, really am your fan that you had this self-awareness to reach that decision.
0: That's a very, that's a very generous um. I guess, spin on that, because the other spin is that here I've I've kind of made a pattern of going into graduate programs and pulling back out. So uh, there's two (laughs) ways to look at that, I guess. Thank you for thank you for your very kind spin. But as you're talking about your your perspective on your own life trajectory, you have, yes. as you say, this very joyous optimistic spin, which is or or perspective. I, I guess that's just that's how it feels to you. And it and as you say, it doesn't fit the narrative, which is right. this narrative of of oppression. And 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 yet one thing I, I want to ask you about is even as you talk about it, there's this degree to which racial dynamics have been a part of your story and as hmm. you tell the story and i think one of the points that the critical race theorists want to always they they want to hammer home is like oh you white people never had to think about this you just go through life as an american neutral sure. you're just american neutral you don't race doesn't impact you whereas for for black people and for people of other racial backgrounds they have to be aware of this in a way that it really impacts their own development so there's this there's this sort of desire to sort of level that and and have everybody think about it in a way and what do you think about that
1: well i mean i think i think that says not much i mean there are <laughs> many dimensions of a person that are unique to that person that you may have to think about that someone else doesn't. So for example, um, I'm right-handed. I never think about that because it's a right-handed society. Mm -hmm. But if I were left-handed, I would. Mm -hmm. Um, I have asthma. I think about asthma. If I didn't, I would never think about it. But the point is, it's something I think about and I then move ahead in life. Uh, What's another example? Um, Well, I'm an introvert. And that indeed... Influences a lot of my life. I think about it, for example, when I'm in a, a, a reception or a breakfast group or a meeting with people I've never met before, I'm always thinking and rethinking. So, what's a conversational hook? What's a path of commonality? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I make that person laugh or feel a connection? I give this a lot of thought before I go into that dreaded reception.
0: You map my it life,
1: out. Yeah. My wife is an extrovert. My mother-in-law is an extrovert. I don't a time of day. I just go into that meeting and they're in their element like a fish in water. So so the point being, we all have dimensions of things we think about that others don't. But that's just part of being a human. Race is just one of many things. It has not made a difference in my life to the degree that it's noteworthy,
2: mm-hmm. to be
1: honest with you. Now, If it were the year 1969, yeah, you bet, noteworthy.
2: Mm
1: Year 2023, to be honest, it's more noteworthy because I have to navigate and understand these slogan words that Mm -hmm. make no sense to me. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the critical race, race theorists are creating the very dynamic they then look to say, well, see, this is why you don't have privilege, because you're having to deal with, no, no, having to deal with the consequences of your warping the public discourse to include things like race. Case in point, I never, ever, ever, never would have thought about my race when visiting a doctor, for example. But I've read these crazy things about the American Medical Association and structural racism and marginalism, So I know And I hate to admit, for for many, many, many years, I've had doctors and dentists and uh, physicians uh, of different racial groups never give it a second thought. It's only now that I read organizations like the AMA give it a second thought, Mm -hmm. that medical schools are giving it a second thought. Mm -hmm. That the cohort of medical kids coming out of schools are giving a second thought. Now I have to kind of think about, should I give it a second thought? Mm -hmm. I need to like make it clear. It's me, wink, not the generic black American Mm -hmm. male, not the cardboard figure. It's me. I get my own little genomic profile. Want to see it? <laughs> <laughs> this only one me. You laugh, Leslie, but I actually have given my genomic profile to my physician because I wanted him to know my unique twenty thousand genes, mm. who I am. Mm-hmm. And, yeah.
0: Wow, uh, that's and that's so interesting. As we see all these position statements coming out and all these trainings, um, uh, yeah, it, it you stresses know, when... out the
1: individual who happens who happens to be blocked. That's, right. That's the deal
0: and the words that you used you used words when you were you were talking about positive um positive representations or positive uh ways of going through life self-reliance yes. self-respect yes. yes these are yes. all words that have to do with individual agency yes. and when we're taking this collectivist re- reductionist lens we're flattening people now, down and it's really quite dehumanizing and it takes the well, individual out of the equation
1: irony you're marginalizing the individual mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. marginalizing the individual. Wow. You're imposing collectivism on someone who, huh. by dint of personality and temperament, doesn't live that way. You don't exist that way. I think it's one of the greatest coming um, problems, and it's going to be the clash between the collectiveness, for whom this seems natural and good, mm-hmm. and the genuine individual who's mm-hmm. going to feel more and more, to use an overused word, oppressed, or at least disconnected. From larger forces. I I don't, I really, really, really don't want any institution to view me through the filter lens of race,
2: mm-hmm.
1: view me through the lens of filter of who I am as an individual, because mm-hmm. I've had a unique journey and, and, and step through life that needs to be seen and uh, appreciated. And it makes me stronger. It makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Most of more are wise about race, the collectivists for whom I must be oppressed because I'm a black guy. Or the individualist who says, okay, wink, tell me your story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do you love to do? Who are your heroes in life? That person is more affirming, quote unquote, mm-hmm. than the collectivist. We've got to we got rise up, the individuals who are out there. I, I think there's a growing psychological movement and nonconformers can feel it in their souls we know we're being fed a bill of goods. We know that more and more associations and institutions are being captured, and we're going to resist because it's in our nature, Leslie, mm-hmm. to not accept things without questioning them. I know you feel that way, mm-hmm. and I feel that, that way too. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, my sense is, in a way, I'm ahead of my time because I think these things go through generational cycles. So I think the collectivist will have its heyday. But what will happen is little kids will grow up and they will reject that. Mm-hmm. They will not want to embrace dogma. They will begin to scoff at it. They'll begin to mock it.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and then eventually you'll have the rise of a new generation of beatniks,
2: mm-hmm.
1: hipsters. I call them non-conformist intellectuals. And they'll they'll change the dynamic. But it'll take a generation. It'll take a generation. Yeah, so I won't be here to see it but I think it'll take some time.
0: Uh, well, I think you're right. And that's something that does give me, that gives me hope as well. It's just this, this sort of, these things cycle through. And, yeah. and one mm-hmm. of the things that, I, I, well, first of all, I just want to say, I really love the phrase that, because you, you're using their language. you use, you, use and, and it's so beautiful. Marginal Marginalizing the individual. Yes. And oh, that's Leslie, so true. I really love that.
1: We could, talk. <laughs> we could talk, we could talk. Let's talk. Because <laughs> we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Leslie? Because I was thinking about there for the past few nights. If one really scoffs at slogan words, is it ethical and moral to skillfully use the tools of the master, quote unquote, mm-hmm. against the dogmatists, against the critical race theorists? Should nonconformers double down and simply flip the script and use the very words against the forces of conformatism. What do you think about that?
0: I mean, I think it's a rhetorical tool that's that has some that and has you feel some good validity. about it. Yeah. I mean I think that I think that we have many tools. I mean mockery uh, is one, uh, satire is one, using their sure. language is one, and then having long sure. form discussions that involve a lot of nuance is another. Right. The meme war is kind of interesting, also, which is kind of like uh-huh. the mockery and the satire and and finding right, right, humor right. in it. And one of the things about the the critical social justice movement as a whole, the identity politics field, is it's humorless. It's really yes. with its yes. microaggressions, and it's always yes. looking for. Yes. So you're one of I I know I've used this example before on this in, in these discussions, but um, when in my program we were taught about using your privilege. And we were talking about being a white savior, and so being sure. being a white savior is bad. Using your privilege is good, but the examples were virtually identical, and so you end up just like afraid to do anything because you're just going to mess up <laughs> in any which way, which right, right. is the death of humor because we yes. can't we can't play if we right. can't if we can't take yeah. risks of making mistakes.
1: Exactly, exactly. The death of society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe so yeah. So that's another tool: humor, the mm-hmm. ability to be joyful. Uh, mm-hmm. The ability to 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 mock those who lack the ability to see the irony in life. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I suspect there are some people for whom, if you merely utter the word "affirm," it's like uh like a trance. It's like you flip a switch and they have to bow down like Pablo's dog. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- think about that. Think about that. It's try that. Yeah, use certain words and see if the uh, conformer is able to resist. Your uh manipulations,
0: right? Like I've heard people refer <laughs> to uh instead of gender affirmative care, body sure. affirmative care, which affirms sure. the, the physical body that you're born yeah. into and that you're not born into. Yeah. So there's there's yeah. little flips like that.
1: Exactly. Now let's be really radical, really <laughs> radical. I had this nascent idea, which won't let go, and I began to like write an essay or two about it. If The world is set on fire with trans ideology or dogma to dissipate the understanding of gender. Could it be that the same tools of trans, in terms of the words, the words help us get beyond race as a category, transracials in other words. Mm -hmm. Does the idea of transracials offer us a sustainable escape hatch from the uh, manipulations of critical race theory. Because critical race theory presumes an inflexible race, Mm -hmm. blackness. Mm -hmm. Nothing else matters, oppression. But if you dissolve those categories and recognize that racial consciousness and culture is on a spectrum, Mm -hmm. and we must affirm the transracials, they must live in human dignity. They are tired of living a lie. The cisgenders are the enemy. Mm-hmm. The cis, no, the racial cis are the enemy. Cisracial. The yeah. cisracials are the enemy. Yeah. We, can't, we have to put aside the binary in, in Blackness. Let that give us an escape hatch out of these crazy ways of thinking about Blackness.
0: And yet, it doesn't seem like people who try the transracial thing are are very well accepted. I immediately think of Rachel Dolezal.
1: Of course, of course, yes, yes, yes. And I think that's because um, I, I see her as almost maybe a vanguard.
2: Mm, it's like mm, um, uh,
1: a okay. lone scout, the, yeah. the, the scout who's ahead of the the, uh, the the band of settlers. But could it be over time, as you have more and more mixed families, mm-hmm. as you have more and more blacks? From whom their life is not Ta-Nehisi Coates and in Inner City of Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Their life is Scarsdale. Their life is Malibu. Their life is Greenwich, Connecticut. Their life is Honolulu, Hawaii. Could mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, it be that there will develop a a, a demand for racial tools, racial language mm. that transcends the world of cis-racials. Hmm. So maybe even, you know, it's kind of like you change the language one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone writes an article on the Harvard Law Review, the Leo Law Journal, the the, the oppression of cis-racials. And people go, boo. And then someone says, and what does that mean? Well, that means there's a binary that
0: mm-hmm. exists
1: within Blackness. What does that yeah. mean? Well, that means we must address that binary. What does that mean? And then it kind of goes step by step by Mm -hmm. step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just an idea. Well, it's
0: really interesting. And I think people who are of mixed race background have a lot of trouble deciding sometimes how they want to, how, what they identify with most and, and they get pressure from different groups, you know, from this group B you're being too much like them, or you're, you're not enough like us or whatever it is. And I, when I was a kid growing up as one of a small number of white kids in a, in a in an area that was largely Hispanic, probably a similar, mm-hmm. similar number of black kids and white kids. But white was, as far as I was aware, it was the worst thing you could be. I really mm-hmm. didn't, it was, mm-hmm. it was similar when you describe being a kid and going to school and getting those slurs. I wasn't oh, going yeah. through desegregation by any means, but I was, uh, I was quickly aware of words like honky and pleta and and things that were being thrown at me and I didn't. And the first time I heard honky, I wanted to laugh at it, but then I saw how mean they were. It was like that's Ah. you're not (laughs) that's not funny. So um, I wanted to be anything but. And my my grandmother was uh, my my dad's stepmother was Mexican American, and uh, you know I just I really wanted to identify into something else. I would have Mm. clung to. I, I it was kind of a thing that I. I played with for a little while, like my grandma's sure. Mexican. So you, you know, don't call me white. She, of course I'm as white as the day is long. She wasn't my blood, but sure. you right. know, right. it was uh it was a thing. So I can see people wanting to use it as a, as a kind of get out of jail free card. And the LGBT <laughs> identities kind of serve as that right. right now for a whole generation of, of kids who are being told that they have, right. they're carrying all this unearned privilege. Yes.
1: Would your tell me how your life would have been better if you had had the ability to live free of rigid racial categories, ra- rigid racial boxes. How would your life have been better in Texas?
0: Um. Well, i I think that uh, I think that in group out group dynamics and and racial mm-hmm. discrimination is certainly one of those one of a big one. Can are are harmful for the people that experience them i think that it it causes you to have uh, you know and there can be a story of overcoming and of growing stronger from facing something like that or there can be some uh, you know a story of of being really harmed and kind of uh, having sure. a part of yourself squashed by that and so right um bullying is it's a double-edged sword in a way i think that i'd yeah. be i i think i'm probably in some ways, I'm better off for having experienced that. I think it taught Mm -hmm. me a lot about empathy. It taught me a lot about, about, you know, I've I've even thought that somehow, you you talk about nonconformists, do early experiences of not fitting in seamlessly kind of break some of the mystique of the group for some people, and allow them to know what it's like to be on the outside, and that it's still okay to be outside.
1: I love that. I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that. I do, I do. Um, yeah. That's that's a good point. Because I'm thinking about my own experience. When I was in the first and second grade, my all-black classes, and I have a sense of nonconformity, in a sense that I love to read, that I love to be myself, that I love to think. Um, but I think it was in integrated settings That the nonconformity became more pronounced Hmm. and more a badge of something, more a badge of um, my individuality. I guess that's it. Um, I never viewed myself as a member of a a group for my identity in an, an all black setting and in an all white setting in grade school. My identity came from who I was on the inside what my dreams and goals and aspirations were. Mm-hmm. And I accepted people as people. I didn't really, it didn't matter to me what race you were. What mattered to me was, do we have the same um, quirkiness?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Are we both nerds? Do we enjoy to read? Uh, are we in the mm-hmm. Gifted and Talented program? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we look at life in a different way? Uh, those were the things that really struck me in my white um, junior and high school. And I think that's good, actually. I wonder, I'm going to speculate, Leslie, query, would having gone to a Black college or a Black law school have suppressed my individuality? Hmm. Because the pressures to conform to racial um, dogma might have been stronger. Hmm. Ironically, I may have found my true self more at Harvard Law School, Hmm. then I might have to say Howard Law School. Just a thought, just Mm -hmm. a thought. I mean, Mike, because as you probably know, Leslie, there's a lot of, um, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of conformity in Black culture and consciousness, by and large. 76% of Black Americans, according to the Pew Research Survey, believe Blackness is extremely important Important or very important to one's sense of self, 76%. Mm, mm, but that means 24% feel it's of zero importance or little importance to mm, one's sense of self. Mm. I mean, I'm clearly in the 24%. Mm-hmm. I didn't apply for membership. It's just who I happen <laughs> to be, right? But query whether or not, as a member of the 24%, I'm always um, at odds or ill at ease with the 76%. Hmm. Am I accustomed to having to suppress my real thoughts or think twice for the sake of harmony in Black settings, but in integrated settings or white settings, I feel greater freedom to be myself. Hmm. Does that make sense? That maybe I wouldn't have this conversation, perhaps, with the typical Black YouTube podcaster, Hmm. because odds are that person would be in the 76% for Hmm. whom Blackness is very important or extremely important. Whereas you may not, you may be more like those in the Black minority, the 24%, who feel races of no importance to one's sense of self mm-hmm. or a little importance to one's sense of self. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, like in, in other words, to rephrase, if Tony Hosey Coates or Dr. Kendi were on this podcast interviewing me, <laughs> I'm not so sure I would feel so light and easy and free flowing. Yeah. I think it's the, I think you have to be, I think open minds bring out the best in me. They bring mm-hmm. out the individual. Closed mm-hmm. so minds cause me to retract, like a turtle might retract its head into its shell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if you really want to affirm people and bring out the human soul and spirit, we need more open minds in society. Less closed minds in society.
0: Hmm. Oh yeah. The individual
1: I... needs the individual needs yeah. to step up and help to bring forth that better day. I think
0: absolutely, so,
1: absolutely. revolutionary <laughs>
0: <laughs> no it's just seem it seems like gentle revolutionary <laughs> yeah there's very it, and, and you know speaking of revolutionary and i i, I feel like i want to go like 10 different directions off of what you just said um Forward, Leslie. <laughs> but yeah it's um it's it's stunning that we're there it, obviously there are some people to whom their experiences around race are going to be extremely important to their, exactly. to their current reality yeah and to their to their formation right. and they're going to have um they're going to have triumphs and they're going to have wounds and they're going to have all yeah. manner of experiences around these things but to right. assume uh, to teach counselors for instance to assume that by looking at someone's skin you can know something of substance about their experiences their character or their temperament i just i just i find that just incredibly uh, it, it's stunning that that's being taught right now in in 2023
1: in the 2020s we're what, teaching this what, in schools. It, it's, it's 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 lazy thinking it's lazy it, yeah. thinking you, you you can't look at a, a black person and tell yourself mm. i think he's in the 76 so yeah. i better be really really mm. down with the people or i think she's in the 24 so i mm. can just sit back and uh just you know treat her as if she were in the cosmos Show or something like that. <laughs> uh, you just can't tell. Yeah, yeah. It's, like it's it's now now. I'm gonna go a little bit further, Leslie. I have found the most interesting phenomena in my lifetime. uh So, I'm Wink. I call myself Wink. You call yourself Wink. But my full name is Winkfield Franklin Twyman Jr. You know, you know how sometimes they have these studies that part of the oppression is black names. That the HR person gets a resume, mm-hmm. they can tell the black mm-hmm. answer trash can. Yeah. Would you be able to tell, if you were an HR uh, director, and you got my resume with my full name, would you think that's a black name? No, I wouldn't. Uh-huh. What would you think?
0: Uh, I would think it was an interesting name. I would kind of wonder whether, I, Twyman, I I don't know if I would wonder if you were, I, I, now maybe this shows my ignorance of, of names and geography, but sure, I sure. might think like European or something, Winkfield. What What is that? Some Sure. Sure. German or I, I don't know. I don't know what I would think.
1: Here, here's a true story, Leslie, which mm-hmm. why I bring it up. Uh, I was at the doctor's office for this dreadful cold last mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And so a doctor's working up my my report. And she looks at the screen and she turns to me and says, that's an interesting name you have. That sounds very regal. Can you tell me more about your name? So, so that's an example number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, second example, um, I was working on Capitol Hill. But Congressman Barney Frank, as you probably know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to be his L.A., such state of assistant. So I dealt with constituents. And I remember we had this long relationship with a constituent who was a former congressman from New Hampshire, a French Canadian. And we would joke and laugh over the phone. We had a great old time, as you and I are having today, Leslie. And at one point, the congressman said to me, so tell me about your name. And I thought, I'm going to play with him because I bet he has a mental image of me because of my name. I said, well, you know, uh, congressman such and such, it's a a tectonic name. The name comes from northern Germany. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I can't wait to meet you. (laughs) So the the, the trap was set. And so maybe a few days later, he came to Barney's office to meet me for the first time. And his jaw dropped, and it was funny, because I knew he had a certain mental Mm -hmm. image Mm -hmm. in his mind of Mm -hmm. the name. And then when he saw me, well, no, that wasn't. (laughs) The name can be German. doesn't mean you're a German person. Uh, Third example, uh, I was in law school. I got a summer job at a law firm, named a law firm. And I was a summer associate. And I began working there was in DC. The first day I, I was there. I was had lunch with another summer associate. She was talking over lunch. And she said to me, you know, when I saw your name, I thought you were a Boston Brahmin, like a wasp, but you're not.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So she was kind of disappointed, I think, in a way. Maybe she had images of this, you know, Winthrop the third person coming (laughs) and, you know, being a boyfriend or something. But my point is, uh, I've often wondered, Leslie, if we presume names are our ambassadors in the larger world, that names kind of are our proxy until people see us in the flesh, how has my unique name been mm-hmm. a benefit or not? Mm-hmm. And has my unique name perhaps given me a different racial experience from mm-hmm. those who ha- might have a more shirt or a stereotypical black mm-hmm. name? I've wondered about that, mm-hmm. but how would you ever prove that, right? How would you ever prove that?
0: Uh, it's a really it's an interesting line of inquiry and it, and it kind of goes back to what you said about all the different variables that are present in our lives that that we don't know right. to what degree they're influencing us but we know that that's they right. are because we're a constellation right. of so many variables
1: exactly but exactly
0: it, it is interesting the experiences around your name
1: <laughs> it's true you know it's uh, a final experience uh we were on vacation in Bermuda right mm-hmm. oldest was one year old I think and of course, he's the third. Now, you would ask the question where the name came from. Well, the name is historical. My great uncle was named Winkfield Twyman in 1893. My dad is a senior, I'm junior, my son is the third. So we were at that counter in Bermuda and the counter lady asked for our passport. We gave it to her and we gave her my son's passport. You know, it was funny, her reaction to the name that you know, the little kid was a third, that mm-hmm. he was, and the third. I I think it was like a reaction. Uh, it was a black counter staffer, and that may or may not matter. But I thought it was kind of like, that maybe the name didn't fit the family, or didn't mm-hmm. like seem to what she was expecting. Hmm. And, but who can say? Who can judge those things? But uh, but I do Did think. Did you, it's
0: you think you experienced a microaggression? i was <laughs> intrigued sorry. i was intrigued
1: i'm you sorry you have to ask a question yeah. Good question i don't know I, and i, I don't mean to make that, but <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: the word microaggression is uh, is yeah. an interesting one uh-huh
1: okay. but uh i remember um you had made a point earlier about cohorts cohorts and how mm-hmm. yeah the you young know, younger i sometimes feel when i'm on the streets of san diego that Kids who are white
2: mm-hmm.
1: are less open to just having kickback, joyful, chill mm-hmm. conversations. That mm-hmm. I remember when I was in college and law school and in my 30s and 40s. I mean, it's something I can't really put my finger on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One example I remember there was this white lady in my office building, wonderful lady, and we used to walk together to work on occasion. Mm-hmm. And I remember, because we were so friendly, I remember deciding to ask her a question. It was a question involving um, making sense of my relationship to a historical figure who happened to be white American. Mm-hmm. And it was just an ordinary, average question. And you should have seen her demeanor change. It was like um, a foot turned on, and, and and she had a different expression on her face, and she kind of said, I can't talk about this. Mm it's just kind of walked away. And it was a very strange thing. I hmm. can't talk about that. we had been talking about everything under the sun before hmm. that. How but the moment I raised the question involving, and got the, 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 the guy is George Washington, and whether hmm. or not it was kind of interesting for a Black American to have a relationship to someone like that. And hmm. she just shut down.
0: She just couldn't it's, go there.
1: Right. And hmm. I wonder if that was because of the IE training, because of her classes hmm. in college hmm. or grad hmm. school. And and hopefully that's just an anomaly. But if it's not an anomaly, Oh, I think I think
0: people are terrified to talk about it. I think younger people are so scared to have those kind of conversations. They've just been bode told well. they can't talk about it this oh. way, but they also can't talk about it that way. Oh, and either, you know. True
1: story, yeah. true story. I'm giving a presentation at uh, University of San Diego Law School uh, mm-hmm. as a former law professor. And I'm talking about some dry, dull topic. Even I was bored. So after, you know, 45 minutes were over, out of my hour session, I was like, ready to go. But it was a QA and a session, and the kids were, you know, mindless, looking up to the ceiling, looking at their watch. One guy asked me a race-related question. I think it was like, well, what was your life like, or your racial experience? Something like that. And I just answered, naturally, like you and I are talking right now. Leslie, Leslie. It was like the the switch had flipped on. Kids went from being mindless, morose, not there, to eyes wide oh, wow. open on the edge of their chairs, leaning in, listening to... It was like I was spouting words in the context of race. They had never heard... And they, these are like law students. This wow. year was like 2015, 2016. And they made an impression on me because... I was speaking stuff that would have been not worthy of note in the 1970s or eighties. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm talking to you right now, but it was clear to me that they had never heard someone in authority mm-hmm. talk about race without mm-hmm. using those slogan words. Yeah. Oppression, marginality, privilege. Yeah. for ju- And I just thought, Lord, what's happening to these law students? They're going to be the judges one day. They're right. going to be, the um members of congress one day right uh, that's not good you need to have people who feel free to talk and mm-hmm. don't worry about uh i the, mean, the aim should be the search for truth mm-hmm. the aim should not be the search for dogma <laughs> the yeah. aim should not you know those are two different worlds and i want to live in this world this search yeah. for truth not that world the search for dogma. absolutely
0: so. and it is really concerning to see all of the different areas of life that this is going to impact Going to increasingly impact yes. as this cohort yes. goes through and yes. becomes yes. the professional generation. And yes. And yet yes. one of my real hopes is something you sort of touched on a little bit earlier, is that there's this rebellious spirit in young people. Yes. They, I, yes. I I think that one of the things that identity politics or intersectionality, critical race theory, gender ideology, all these things, one of the, the things that they offer is that there's we we were talking a lot um when i was studying so sociology in the early 2000s the early aughts, okay. um the the there was this big concept of a me where people were going to start to feel um alienated from meaning in their life as we became more automated and as as people became less individually um had less individual agency and less ability to to harness their own their own individual potential in life. And so we were we were facing this crisis of anomie and we knew this. This was something the sociology professors were big on at the time. And it seems like what i intersectionality and social justice ideology has provided it's provided a, a sense of identity, a sense of oh. belonging and above all a quest because people need a quest i think to to have something mm. to push off against in yeah. order to to be seeking meaning right. and and this sort of offers that in one package but as the next generation comes through, and it, this is being pushed on them by their teachers, I think that the rebellious spirit eventually says, "I'm not just taking the quest you're offering me. I'm not,
1: I'm yeah. not
0: going to do it the way that you guys are doing it." I think people naturally want to rebel as young people and distinguish themselves. So, my hope is that we're going to see some of that come through, as yeah. and, and yeah. hopefully in our lifetimes. As you said, you you don't think you'll see it in your lifetime, but I hope I hope we will. I hope it I won't take
1: too long. I mean, that, that's my hope too. And so I ask you, Leslie, what is the role for people of my generation in their 60s? What is the place for people who feel like they are part of a nomad generation? Mm -hmm. For those who knew Jim Crow segregation uh, toddlers, and who now know racial dogma and critical race theory in our elder years, what's our role right now in this decade? What can we do? What should we say?
0: Well, that's a really big question, and I'm sure it's multifaceted. The answer is multifaceted, but I think that one of the potential answers could be found in the response that you saw those students have when you started speaking yes. with nuance, and yes. it's that your your generation and even Generation X, my generation and and older, mm-hmm. we have, we we grew up being able to speak in terms of nuance in a way that right. the younger generation has been has been increasingly had it's been drummed out of them and been right. they've been taught to be afraid of, of honest conversation and right. to parrot in catchphrases. So I think maybe the ability to still have good dialogue and to be fearless mm. in your willingness to mm-hmm. engage with nuance is, mm-hmm. is a role.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're onto something. I remember there was a guy at a conference maybe two months ago who said to me that, A lot of these kids don't know what meant to go to a segregated all-black school Mm -hmm. so your experience really is living Mm -hmm. history in a sense Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. which i didn't really appreciate at the moment Mm -hmm. uh, because because everyone kind of thinks of their history as unique Mm -hmm. as kind of the world and it is to some degree Mm -hmm. but if you look at my my daughter for example uh, um born in the year what point 2002 so to her Jimmy Carter's ancient history. Mm-hmm. Whereas to me, Jimmy Carter, it was like a guy who's president in junior high school. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting um, because when I tell her stories about Virginia and what I knew, he says to me, Well, you know, dad, it, it's like watching a, a history documentary screen and the film is rolling and you're talking and it's in black and white, like Twilight Zones <laughs> episodes. And uh, so so it's kind of, it's removed from her life experience, which it makes sense, makes sense. But the danger is her life experience is this more pernicious dogma existence, which is, seems to not be the way towards a very open, abundant life of joy and nuance and complexity. I'm not sure where that life is leading to, but I will say this. I mean, I do think that... Um, hopefully one day she will appreciate, and all my kids will, and all the young generation will appreciate that these are the best times in American history to be a young Black adult. Hmm. Beats the 1690s, beats the 1790s, beats the 1890s, even beats the 1990s. And so I'm not sure why that common sense message doesn't, permeate the airways why is it when i'm reading or listening to npr i do hear that message these were the best of times i hear another message these are the worst of times Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. that bothers me leslie actually Mm -hmm. i'll be in the car with my wife in a good mood life is great joyful i'm thinking good thoughts and on comes npr and there's some story about some racial incident back mm. in the 1930s and we know it's going to be downtrodden and we know the end of this story mm-hmm. and your spirits are depressed and you hear the slogan words and you go from feeling man, it's a wonderful blue sky day to yeah.
0: <laughs> well i think what you're you're really underscoring is the power of perspective and th- whether it's about well about anything really race um, uh, war, uh, culture yeah. in any, you know, gender, you just pick a topic. We have different ways we can look at things and, and you're, it, there are some times when there's less ability to, to shift your focus, but then there's other times when there's a, a lot. And when you're talking about something that has so much individual variability, then there are as yes. many ways to look at it as there are individuals who are experiencing
1: it. Where does perspective come from? Hmm.
2: Where does, Where that does come it come from? Mostly?
1: Yeah, is it is it environmental? Is hmm. it genetic? Is it cultural? Is it learned? Is it some combination of the four?
0: Hmm. Um and, in in its in terms of uh, temperamental outlook and sure persp- ability, I think that it's I think it's a lot of different things. I think there's a lot mm-hmm. of different factors. We have mm-hmm. inborn temperament, which is one part of it. Right, right, The experiences that you've been exposed to and what's been modeled
1: for yeah. you. I've always thought that perspective is a factor of one's creativity.
2: Mm.
1: It's a factor of one's insight, one's intuition, right? So the more you're inclined to examine life as opposed to living the unexamined life, I think that tends to dig a deeper um, lens for deeper perspective does that make sense like yeah. if you are a true raging extrovert who lives for the next party who lives for the sorority get together the fraternity night out, you're not really going to think maybe that deeply about life all the time but yeah. if you have a different inclination i think that kind of leads you towards a deeper perspective about yeah. things that makes mm-hmm. sense
0: mm-hmm. it does make sense yeah. it does i like yeah. that that outlook combining it with creativity
1: and speaking
0: Perhaps- <laughs> go ahead,
1: please, please. You go. Oh, you sure? Okay. I was I yeah. was just gonna say, once again, it's this, it's the same thing. But even if you are even if you have that kind of that temperament, that mm-hmm. that that hunger for curiosity, for insight, for intuition, for deeper meaning behind the surface, you're in the minority. Mm-hmm. People like that, I think introverts alone are just what 25%, 20% of the population. So you're outnumbered by extroverts from the get-go. So it's, it's once again, that idea of always feeling that you you know who you are, but you also know that who you are is not who most people are. That's a good way to put it. Mm. So Mm -hmm. you know that you don't really care about Blackness as a part of your sense of self, but you recognize that most Black people do. Mm -hmm. You recognize that you really don't want to go to that faculty dinner tonight people in the faculty do want to go to that dinner tonight and socialize or whatever. You recognize that your idea of a good time on the airplane is to read, even though you also know that most people enjoy talking with the seatmate and getting to know someone else. I think those little differences in temperament, for me at least, are way more important than race per se, mm-hmm. if I were to see a therapist.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's yeah, I think that's really um, that aligns very much with, with what I hoped we would hear in a counseling program. And oh, it's yeah. not what we heard. But <laughs> thank you so much for <laughs> for giving that perspective. And um, I I want to make sure before, I, I've taken a lot of your time. I've really enjoyed this oh, conversation. Miss, and miss I would, miss I miss would miss. love to talk with you at length on all of these things and more.
1: For oh, um, sure. You're a fun person. I enjoy. Thank you. You are too. I I I tell you, I just I I I love great conversations. I do, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that saddens me is, I sense more and more, we don't have the space to do that in the public square, and that's Mm -hmm. that's that's Mm -hmm. sad. That's kind of sad.
0: You know, and I think some of that seems like it's related to the short attention span that we've cultivated with the internet. TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) No but it is a shame i i mean i even noticed my own attention span is shorter than it used to be and oh, i don't really? like that yeah i really don't mm. like that but i have more trouble TikTok, sitting right? no i'm not <laughs> but i do have more trouble sitting and reading a book than i used to and i used to mm. read voraciously so you yeah. know and but um but books your book with Jennifer Richmond how yes. could, could you tell me a little bit about how you to conceptualize this book and and how it came to be
1: sure um well, Jennifer, uh, my co-author, he uh lived for a period of time overseas in uh in China. Mm-hmm. And when she returned to the States, she was a Native American, but when she returned to the States, he was <coughs> excuse me, she was struck by the division and the polarization in public discourse about race. Mm-hmm. That the different groups seemed to be at loggerheads, mm-hmm. that there was no longer sort of a um a sense of common shared values uh, and norms, mm-hmm. and that troubled her. And she wanted to learn more. She's a curious person, so yeah. she sought out the um, a diversity training program run by the city of Austin, Texas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and uh, she went there expecting to learn more about how to understand other people. And what she found was the exact opposite. She found uh, affinity groups based upon race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She found dogma, she found slogan words, she found white self-hatred, the expectation that one needed to beat the drums in terms of guilt and white fragility. And so something inside of her refused to um, drink the Mm Kool-Aid, something inside of her refused to go along. And so she had one of those classic um, um, moments of, excuse me, freedom Individual thought. She raised her hand, he was shaking, quivering, and she basically said, I don't see how this is constructive good, more or less. I don't see how we're lowering divisions when we're doing things to increase racial division and consciousness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other whites, of course, it was the only white affinity group,
2: mm-hmm.
1: noticed the assumption affinity is race based.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all the
1: other whites in the group looked at her as if she were some kind of demon child some kind of monster they physically removed themselves from her oh. she was quite taken wow. aback by that and so um he uh collected her thoughts she's a in terms of briggs meyer's personality she's an infj uh intuitive feeling let's see intuitive no no no, no. introverted feeling intuitive judging that's right
2: mm-hmm, and right.
1: so she uh wrote an essay for Ariel Magazine online about this experience. So the next morning after it was published, um, I read the magazine. It usually has good essays and ideas. So I read it and I thought, this is a kindred spirit. Mm. Someone who's feeling that same sense of disconnect and alienation um, and disillusionment as I am. So I quickly shot off an email to her mm-hmm. wishing her well because she was trying to put together a project of letters for people. And and I also made the point that I thought she should be encouraging people to write her who also were of old American stock.
2: Because mm-hmm.
1: I thought that you needed to get together people of all races who had family roots dating back. To the 1600s and the 1700s mm. because those p- families would understand american slavery as a family matter mm. supposed to reaching out to someone like my friend uh i'll call her um julia uh who is a hong kong immigrant he's been here for five years he mm. has mm. no she has no time for talk about reparations for american slavery he feels no sense of guilt mm-hmm. he thinks it's all bogus mm-hmm. so I, I suggested that jennifer should address a certain cohort of demographic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Jennifer was surprised and happy to hear from me. I think that she was delighted. And she could sense I was open-minded. She corresponded back with me. And uh, I was delighted to hear from her. uh, There's a lot of dogma in my household. So I was happy to hear, be able to talk with someone free of dogma about yeah. race. And so we started talking with one another and we developed the idea. Let's let's put this correspondence, which we've developed, uh, into a full-fledged book.
2: Mm. And
1: so we did. Oh. And that was the creation of our book, Letters in Black and White. So it was good for her because I think she really wanted to show that race need not be a barrier to open and honest communication.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: was good for me. Because <laughs> other than the family member who said blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. I also I was thirsty. I was so hungry to just talk freely about race free of dogma and spoken words. Mm-hmm. I really was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's how the book came about. Oh. And, and it's important to note that the book is unique because it's two individuals talking about race.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's no way you could have 40 million black Americans
2: mm-hmm.
1: correspond with 200 million white Americans. Right. But if you can get people as individuals to dive as deeply as they can into race, you will come close to truth. And there is truth out there. We just have to not be afraid upon its presence. Yeah, this approach.
0: Well, it's a really, uh, it's a really intriguing concept and I'm, very much looking forward to reading it. I like the idea of the letters back and forth. So you get to mm-hmm. watch this conversation evolve between two people who are yeah. just trying to honestly grapple with how right. they conceptualize these things and each other's experiences and their own experiences.
1: And total strangers from the get go. I mean, it's one thing to talk with my wife of 30 years about race. She's mm-hmm. heard all the arguments before. She's, she knows all the good, the bad and the ugly. And with my kids, same ditto. So it was so refreshing to really, in a sense, look at race anew, fresh with a, a fresh template. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, yeah. I, I go back to the the, the class the, or the DEI course she was sitting in, as you described it, and and that she said, "I don't really understand how drawing these out is going to help the division." Right. And and it's such a plain common sense statement and I can also understand that the the trepidation and the fear she must have felt doing that yes and that says a lot about where we are that just says a lot yeah about
1: where and it's are. not doesn't say good it doesn't say much well about where we are now it's interesting um do I feel the same trepidation or as Jennifer might have said do I enjoy black privilege because I can talk more freely about race? Mm-hmm. Leslie, that's an interesting question we mm-hmm. might chew on for a moment. because At first, I felt, well, you know, have to nurture your convictions, right freely.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I noticed as we wrote the book, uh, sometimes she would, I think, hold back or be more diplomatic than mm-hmm. maybe she needed to be. I was never that way. I was just like, let the cat out of the bag. Nah. I've been living for 60 years. You're going to hear it all. Yeah. And so I wonder did I have greater mental freedom hmm. talk about race because of my race? What do you think? Hmm. I
0: I mean, I think that that it's interesting that you raised that. And then you also said a little while ago that if you were sitting here talking with Kendi or somebody else, you might, you would have a different response. So I think that there's, there are probably a lot of factors that contribute to that. You're also a very, as a, as a law professor, you're someone who is very well, versed in argumentation and has
1: had to learn to be you know through my your legal studies. Are out my secret setup
0: <laughs> so so i can imagine that you you're very good at crafting an argument that you feel confident yeah. about so that might be a part of it too i wouldn't i would hesitate to go straight to race as uh okay, as the, the main factor good. but but sure yeah. maybe it could play a role because right now we do have the the cultural conversation does lean very heavily on this white guilt idea, which is shaming white people into not speaking freely about race.
1: So I don't know. It's interesting because um, I'm probably what, let's say 22% European in my ancestry. How come I don't feel white guilt in the 22% of my ancestry, which is European? Yeah. I mean, it's a question I'm asking. I mean, is it because once you're Black, we can see nothing else? That's that's a caricature. That's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. That's a cardboard figure. Is it because we don't have the mental sophistication to view individuals mm-hmm. as truly multiracial, even though they may have been assigned the Black race at birth?
0: Mm-hmm. Assigned at birth. <laughs> Well, and I, I like how you bring it back. Thinking about this, <laughs> you bring it back down to individualism, which is right. Right, which is I think the the I, it's really at the end of the day the only thing that makes sense. So. It's the only I way for so. us to treat each other like like we're human beings is to look at the individual it in is. front of us.
1: So, 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 Leslie, why and how did us individuals drop the ball? How did we allow collectivists? To kind of take over the conversation how did that happen when did that happen i mean if you look at our history people like george washington john adams patrick Henry, tom we come from individualistic stuff mm-hmm. how did it happen
0: well i i think that there's this bureaucratic uh management thing that's mm-hmm. happening i mean we've got uh i, I there's I think when we try to administer to large groups of people, you look at how a small school functions versus a big school. Yeah. And with us, with a country like the United States, this, the, the federal bureaucracy, I think that we need to manage. Mm. There's this idea that we need to have human resources and, mm. and mm. aggregation and, and the way that I, I, I don't have the answers for this, but I have like these broad mm-hmm. questions mm-hmm. around why are we mm-hmm. doing things the way we're doing yeah. them?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I, I suspect so I haven't done the work, but I suspect if you were to perform a word cloud analysis
2: mm-hmm.
1: of the leading words used by intellectuals and writers in the 1700s and put that side by side with what writers and intellectuals say today in the 2020s, you're going to find far more respect and love for the individual and Mm. human dignity in the 1700s than in this decade, I think. And, And isn't that such a strange thing? Because arguably, we should be more respectful of the individual because we have the knowledge of history to look back upon, unlike those who lived in the 1700s. Thomas Jefferson didn't have the benefit of looking at the 1600s or the 1500s or 1400s to find a better way of being mm-hmm. uh, in the world and society, and yet he did it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you would think that the great thinkers and minds of our time in this decade would be three or four steps above Thomas Jefferson, and they're not. I mean, one of the things that so um, disappoints me is that we seem to have lost the ability to draw upon, revise and edit, and tap into the wisdom of our founding fathers. Love them or hate them, mm-hmm. we have one of the most enduring forms of democratic rule uh, on the globe, on the planet. And that's not something we should forget or toss into the dustbin of history lightly. Mm-hmm. So, Leslie, you're thinking, but wink, there were white evil men, they were slave owners, everything they touched turned to dust. Well, no. Someone who thinks that lacks discernment. <laughs> The sermon is like one of those things you learn in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Things black or white, things are kind of shades of gray. And the same is true for the great wisdom from previous generations. You you always want to soak up the best Mm -hmm. in your past Mm -hmm. and discard the bad in your past. That leaves you with the best of both worlds. You've enriched yourself with the good and you've enriched yourself by discarding the bad. Mm -hmm. Similarly with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and on and on, we should do this, we, we should do the same. Mm-hmm. We should understand that they own slaves, put that into a box, pass that away as not a good part of their character, and then look at the good things that they did bring into existence and then build upon that and mm-hmm. make life better for our posterity as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's very well said, learning from history and yeah. refining as we go but not just discarding
1: history didn't didn't start with george floyd in 2020 sorry history doesn't start (laughs) george floyd that's one of my fears leslie my fear is that like for me the great hero of my lifetime might have been dr martin luther king jr the great hero for my daughter's lifetime be george floyd Mm. Well, well i don't know that's a I, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, a,
0: that, that's a, a metaphor that could be teased out for, you know, for a very long conversation. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, indeed. So, yeah. well, so this has I, been good. I've enjoyed
0: yeah, it. It's, it's been really a great conversation. I'm so glad I got the chance to speak with you. It's not in person, but face-to-face, whatever this, sure, this sure, medium sure. is. And um, where can where can people find the book if they would like to purchase it?
1: Oh, sure. Simply go to amazon.com okay. Okay. and type in uh, my first name, W-I-N-K, Twyman, T as in Thomas, W-Y as in yellow, M as in Mary, A as an Angel, and as Nancy, and you'll see letters in black and white. I also have a Substack, by the way, if you're really interested in the things I have to say. Just type in my first name, Wink, Field, W I N K F I E L D, Wyman, T W Y M A N, and you'll see my lonely sub-stock. Uh I just enjoy writing about uh, uh, life and things people don't see so often nowadays. I've about 180 essays, so you can mm-hmm. kind of like sample everything I've produced and get a sense of how I see life in the world.
0: Well, great. I will. I'll include links to those underneath of this video, so people can oh, good, follow good, that good. and.
1: I think I sent you one, the Amer- what was it, The Souls of Black the Folk? The Souls
0: of Black Folk,
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. If you really want to know who I am, if you want to know who, who, where I come from, that's probably the best uh, sub-second essay to look at. I mean, so, as I wrote a few weeks ago, a few days ago, there was only one Francis Dumas, who was a great black political figure in Louisiana. There was only one governor Pinchback the first black governor of Louisiana and every black American can say the same thing. There's only one me. And you can live by those words and you'll be a happier, more fulfilled person. There's only one me.
0: I think that's not a collective. That's a beautiful reminder. Beautiful. Thank you so much for this really enlightening conversation and for a really enjoyable conversation. It really just flew by for me. And, um, I hope we get to talk again in the future.
1: Well, thank you, Leslie, for uh, tolerating me uh, over this session, but I've enjoyed it. I've had a lot of fun, and uh, I took great inspiration from you. Uh, Once again, it's not the ordinary person who can choose to leave law school, so I do appreciate
0: (laughs) I do appreciate that. Thank you very much.